You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Today, I wanted to talk about, oh, I've had this idea for a while of uh, trying to do kind of um, a build off of the teaching series that I've done on justice. Now, I've done two teaching series on justice now. One was last summer. So you can go on um, my YouTube channel at Theology Mom and check that out. I think it's called um, Answering God's Call to Justice. It's just two parts. And I start to kind of lay out a framework there for a biblical perspective on justice. Then earlier this year, um, kind of in the fall, I did a four-part series on, on another one on justice called um, The Beauty of Biblical Justice, which really kind of builds on top of that and goes into more detail. So what I'm going to do today is kind of, all right, now how do we make all this practical? That's what I really have wanted to do is build on that and show you how these principles of justice apply in a very practical way when you're doing something as simple as scrolling through your social media feed or um, watching the news. So just to give a very quick 30,000 foot recap of the big ideas of the justice series is basically justice is an expression of how you live righteously and it's how you love your neighbor. Okay. So all of God's law is divided into how to love God and how to love your neighbor. So when we look at the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, what it's doing there is giving us the details of those two great commandments. So loving our neighbor isn't just left up to our emotions. It's not left up to the culture to inform us how to love our neighbor. No, we first have to look in scripture to see if there's any biblical principles that have bearing on informing us how to love our neighbor in a very specific way. So when we think about God's law, I think American Christians often have a lot of misconceptions and bad information about the role of God's law in our life. Yes, it's true. We are not saved by works. The law, God's law cannot save us, but that doesn't mean that it's useless. <laughs> David, King David says, oh, how I love your law. Well, why does he say that? Well, the law, it says it reveals something about God's character. It tells us what holiness is. It tells us what love is. It tells us what justice is. Justice, it says, um, I think it's in the Psalms, it, it, it's at the very throne room of God. The law inf condemns us of our sin if we're not a Christian. It, it ought to bring us to a hopeless place of why we need the gospel. And the gospel is what God has done and taken initiative to save us from our sins. The law con condemns us of our sins. It shows us how deeply flawed we are and how distant we are from God's holy character. But once the Holy Spirit lives in us, the law functions a little differently. It can still convict us of our sins when we read God's law. 
but it also helps to inform and shape our soul. It helps us to know how do I love my neighbor in a way that I am reflecting the image of Christ? Because once I have the Holy Spirit in me, I become, I ought to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And so that's what the law does is it reveals God's standard and definition of love and justice. It tells me how to live righteously. Okay, so that's the 30,000 foot view of my entire like six, eight hours of teaching on the law. So you can go check that out. So now how do we make this practical? How, the next time a story goes viral, I want to help you. I'm here to help. <laughs> I want to help you not lose your mind. Okay. When things, when the internet is blowing up, when Twitter's blowing up and Facebook's blowing up and your feed's all crazy and People are making all kinds of statements and pronouncements and telling you, you got to post a black square and you, you got to watch this video and you got to react to this video. Otherwise, silence is violence. And what's a Christian to do? Okay. First, we take a deep breath. All right. You don't need to respond. All right. You don't. That's a party that you can actually say no to that invitation. All right. The Christian ought to pause and take a deep breath and start to investigate how do the principles of God's justice come to bear on this particular news story. That's our project. That's what we ought to do. So we're going to look at a few recent cases that have come out and been in the news, and they were in the news a year ago, two years ago. And now some of those trials have worked their ways through the court system. And I just want to offer <clears throat> some perspective. Now, I said most of these things over a year ago in my teaching series on justice. So this isn't like some hindsight in my rearview mirror. Oh, now I can say these things with confidence. No, I said most of these things a year and a half ago. But I'm just trying to refresh our memory and re-point out um, some some biblical principles and help us to begin to connect these dots because some of you still are wondering well okay now that i have this elegant framework on biblical justice in place now what do i do with it all right so rakita i love your comment here you say you absolutely don't need to respond to find out what god would have you do that's that's exactly what i'm saying is you know, the Christian, it's not the job of the Christian to follow the culture and to, to get swept up in the mob. All right. We can step back and start to investigate. Okay. What does the Bible have to say about this particular issue? Okay. So we're going to start with the Jesse Smollett case because that just worked its way through the courts. Now, in case you <clears throat> haven't, um, been aware. The Jesse Smollett case in a nutshell is basically that a, a, a African-American uh, man who, who is gay and he's kind of a Hollywood B-level actor. Um, he reported a hate crime in Chicago in the winter, I believe, of 2019. And he, he was in Chicago. He went out to get a subway at two in the morning during a polar vortex and allegedly, he reported, got attacked by two white people, two white men wearing uh, MAGA hats, and they put a noose around his neck and poured bleach on him. It was a horrible, horrible story. Okay, 
So then immediately, here's what happens is that you get all the talking heads coming out and saying things real quickly. And I'm going to play a little video here. This is about coming to the aid of another brother that has tasted the brutality of hatred, racism, and bigotry. In this situation, hate won't win. Mm -hmm. It will not. You didn't deserve, nor anybody deserves, to have a noose put around your neck. He had bleach poured onto him. This needs to stop. He will forgive these people for what they did. And, but he won't. And we cannot forget their actions. And hopefully this just opens up, opens up people's eyes. That's just what needs to stop, man. God damn, why are we going backwards? There are a lot of evidence of, 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 of violent incidents that happen at these MAGA rallies. This is, this is a, essentially terrorism. And you wonder, like, how deep it goes, these hateful groups that get together. Or maybe, hopefully it's just two people. But that's what I'm afraid of, that it's going to well, go I a lot mean, deeper. Well, I mean, people calling it terrorism because the media does not. It you is. Know, it is. Yeah. It's domestic yeah, terrorism. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't like that it's being put out there in the media that this is a right. possible yeah. hate crime. Right. I think that even sows a seed that makes people feel Bumped like, out. well, is he making this up? Yeah. Well, what is this about? Right. I don't like that. Like, don't put that in people's minds. This man was hurt. He was injured and he needs justice. It's the, the horrific yeah. details. Okay, you get the point. I have, uh, hopefully I won't get a copyright strike for that. But it's a good mashup of seeing what the immediate response is, is all the Hollywood types immediately go on the, you know, their platforms and start condemning uh, the hate crime. Okay, so isn't that a good thing? Don't, don't we want to be doing that? Don't we want to be um, condemning hate crimes? Yes, we do. The problem is, is that in this case, it, it it turned out to be a hoax. And, you know, hate crimes do happen. They're a very small percentage. If you go look up the FBI statistics, you can do it. It's like, I think, less than 1% of, of crimes qualify as being hate crimes. It's a tiny number. Um, and But they do happen. But these kinds of hoaxes, which there have been a number of them in the last few years of hoax hate crimes, really give authentic hate crimes kind of a bad reputation. And so how are we to think about situations like this? And so I'm going to try, uh, to the best of my ability, to try to, to walk us through some scriptures uh, that I think would have been helpful for more Christians to meditate on before going on their platforms and just quickly announcing a take, a hot take on, on this issue. So I'm going to talk us through some scriptures. Okay. I think that this is a really good place to start is Leviticus 19.15. And it actually says this in a couple of different places in the Old Testament. It says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Okay. 
So this is important because there is this, Jamie, are you being serious? You've never heard of this story. Wow. Okay. Um, yes. How was it determined? It was a hoax. It was determined to be a hoax within two weeks after it happened with, after the incident happened and it just finished, um, working its way through the courts and, um, uh, Smollett was found guilty of, of this. So no, it's no problem. I'm glad to know. I just assumed I tried to pick stories that people would be the most familiar with because it's so hard to hear analysis. If you don't know the story, it feels too convoluted. So when we're thinking about this issue of, um, you know, partiality, God's definition of justice is equality under the law. This And this used to be the ideal of our own justice system here in America is that whether you're rich or poor, the same rules apply. Um, no matter how rich you are, you should still be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law as a poor person. Now this is God's ideal. And we have this ideally in baked into our judicial system. Unfortunately, we do not follow um, we don't follow this. And that is what makes justice perverted. So we don't get this idea of equality under the law just out of, out of nowhere. This is a biblical concept. The, the framers of our legal system got the idea of equality under the law um, from the Judeo-Christian worldview. And so that's what makes it so gross and, and a perversion or it's wicked when people who are rich and famous, powerful, do not get prosecuted like the little guy, okay? Or that, that the little guy gets higher sentences or um, and, and the powerful get more leniency. That's wicked according to God's justice um, values and his standards. So when, when somebody breaks the law and if the law is consistent with scripture which in in this case we're going to get to that as to whether or not it is um they ought to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law equality under the law is a biblical concept um but yes carlin you're absolutely right is that our culture is trying to convince us is trying to retrain us re-educate us that some deserve more justice than others. So if you are a, a, a person who is in an oppressed group as identified by critical social theories, then somehow different rules apply. That's wicked. That is wicked according to God's justice standards. Okay, let's look at another scripture that I think is relevant to the Jesse Smollett conversation. Exodus 23.1, do not spread false reports. <laughs> um, and if you do this in a court of law, we call this perjury, okay? If you lie on the witness stand, we call that perjury. And that is um, something that is potentially prosecutable as its own separate offense. If you lie on the witness stand, if you lie under oath, okay? 
But there's also penalties for spreading false reports or filing false police reports, which in this case is what Jesse Smollett did. So this is, again, I want to point out that we might not even be aware, oh, this is actually a biblical principle. This isn't just a nice idea that's floating out there in the realm of ideas. This is actually a biblical idea. This is in the Judeo-Christian worldview. And so if we upend this and we say that, well, spreading false reports is okay if you're in an oppressed people group or something, that is a perversion of God's justice. So we want to, um, you know, keep that in mind. I like this proverb that echoes that saying, a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community is it's, it's this idea. It feels like there's a word missing there. Maybe I didn't copy it correctly. A false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. It feels like there should be more to that. I probably just have a pasting error there, but the idea here is that if you do that, if you are a kind of person who spreads lies in your community and gives false reports, that stirs up a lot of things. It stirs up conflict. And that's certainly what we saw in that video clip of all the voices from Hollywood and all the angry words and, and dividing the country because of, of this case. And, you know, well, all victims should be believed. Well, that's actually not a biblical idea that we believe all victims. Um, that's not the standard for biblical justice. The idea of, of, of victims reports, the, the biblical standard is investigate, investigate um, issues when and, and establish the truth of something through the use of witnesses. But we first have to understand that false reports, making false reports, is not a biblical idea. The Bible also has this to say. So sometimes we see in our culture where, you know, people are called upon to, to lie on the witness stand. Well, well that is, is not a biblical idea. Thanks, Carlton or Carlin, I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you for that. Is um, It's in the list of things that God hates. Thank you. Um, so the, the idea of someone who stirs up a community through lies is one of the things that God hates. Very good. Okay, here's another scripture that I think is relevant for us to reflect on. Do not help a guilty or a wicked person is literally what it means in Hebrew by being a malicious or a false witness. This is so important because what sometimes happens in, in there's certain cultural situations um, where we are expected, there's cultural and family pressure to collude with the wicked person and to back up their story. That's not a biblical idea. That is wickedness from God's perspective. That would be a violation of God's justice standard. So that should not be something that Christians should be engaging in. 
we also so when we see these things when we see these things in the news the the posture that we ought to have is one of curiosity it is one of investigating um i think i forgot to put a a one critical scripture on here maybe somebody can help me out with that but um there are a number of scriptures the talk about how you establish the truth of a matter. And that is that you have to have multiple witnesses. You cannot, here we go, Deuteronomy 19.15. I'm going to put that on the screen. That's a good one. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the Christian value is not believe all victims, okay? Believe all reporters. That's, that's not the, the Christian standard of, of justice. Rather, the Christian standard of justice is establish the truth of the matter through multiple lines of evidence. And we live in an amazing age where we have a lot of different options. You know, we have fingerprint evidence. That's a little more old school. We've got circumstantial evidence of, of looking at the crime scene and, and that sort of a thing. We have ballistics evidence. We have eyewitness testimony. We have DNA evidence. We have computer fingerprints. We have um, iPhone evidence and cell tower pinging and all of these things. So the posture of the Christian ought to be one of looking for multiple lines of evidence that, they, that we are establishing the truth of the matter through multiple witnesses. So in the Jesse Smollett case, I, the, the, the witnesses that came forward were security camera footage that showed him uh, rehearsing the crime the night before with his accomplices. They put his accomplices on the witness stand, who in fact were not two white people, but were two Nigerian men who he worked with um, on the show that he was on. Um, they looked at, and so they present all this, this evidence um, for that goes against his case. And that is how we go about establishing the truth of a matter is through two or three witnesses. So Christians, it, it is not the posture of the Christian to believe all victims and then go on our social media platforms and start shouting all of this. The posture of the Christian ought to be one of James chapter one. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. If our first knee-jerk reaction is to go on our social media platforms and just start spouting our truth all over the place without pausing, without investigating, without looking. The Christian posture is to withhold judgment until evidence is heard. Now, I know there's a ton of social pressure. There is a ton of social pressure to get on our platforms and start speaking, to be making posts publicly about things, but that is not the posture of the Christians. Okay, so, <laughs> Carlin, uh, Attorney General Bontrager, yes. 
in in a life uh, when I was in my twenties, I was like at the crossroads: should I be an attorney or a theologian? <laughs> I thought about it, but um, I, I think I made the right choice. So, yes, I'm just looking at scripture to the best of my understanding. That's all. So, um, okay, I think that this is an interesting one uh, to to keep in mind this scripture as well as it pertains to the Jesse Smollett case. This is where we get the idea of innocent until proven guilty. We look at multiple lines of evidence, have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death. Exodus 23, seven. Oh, yes. Innocent until proven guilty. Again, it's not just a nice little idea that's floating around in the American sphere of thought. No, this is a deeply Judeo-Christian idea that we don't have anything to do. If we're going to live righteously, if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, and, and stop just putting that on T-shirts and mugs and bumper stickers and, and making it, you know, kind of like our our idea for a sermon series and 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 our church mission statement, if we're actually going to live like we are going to love our neighbor as ourselves, this is how we do that. We have nothing to do with people who bring up false charges and we dig and we investigate and we establish the truth of the matter through using two or three witnesses because we do not want to convict an honest or innocent person. And so this is why this matters. Okay, the the Bible is is telling us in so much detail. So when the when when God says love love God love your neighbor, two greatest commandments, and then it gives us the ten commandments, and one of those commandments is, thou shalt not lie. These are all the details of how to unfold that. Okay, this is how we unfold it is all of these other small laws that God has graciously given us. So we don't have to be left with, well, gosh, I wonder how I work that out in my everyday life. I wonder what that looks like. Okay, so Amber, I love this comment, slow to speak and slow to type. Yes, you know, I know that it's it's. Uh, it's hard, like when you're in the emotional moment and you want to put that out there and I have to stop myself. I have to restrain myself too many times when I'm hot and I want to post something and and I make mistakes and we all make mistakes, but I want to draw our attention to these biblical principles so that we can um, know what God's word says. So the next time a big story breaks we can live more righteously. We can do more to love our neighbor as ourself. Okay. Now, this one is of particular relevance to the Smollett case, this scripture right here. If the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, or in our case, giving a testimony against a fellow a, a fellow citizen of your country or fellow human <laughs> then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party wow that's really a, a law like god's justice says if you file a false report if you stir up a lot of trouble in your community because of your lies if you go perjure yourself on the witness stand what should fall on you is what 
you were wanting to bring about against that person. That's what God's justice requires. Ooh, this is huge, okay? Because this is what it means, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, okay? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and I cover this in, in quite some detail in my um, Answering God's Call to Justice series, but that's actually an indication of, of we don't want to overpunish and we don't want to underpunish. It's it's like for like. I know that that saying, like a lot of people don't know what that saying even means. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What it means is if 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 I commit this kind of crime, I shouldn't get a punishment that's that's the death penalty if I'm robbing somebody. That that those those don't go together. Okay. It's not robbing somebody is is a different kind of punishment. It's not capital crime. But if I'm robbing somebody, I also don't want to have no punishment. Like that, that would also be wicked in God's justice system. So this is where we get the the saying that the the punishment should fit the crime. That's the biblical principle of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So if we don't want to be wicked people, <laughs> according to God's law, if we don't want to be wicked people, we want to have punishments um, according to what God calls for. So, uh, yes, this is a very good verse. Uh, Proverbs 18, 12, 17, in a lawsuit, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. That is a great and relevant verse for us to keep in mind, too. And um, I love how you're quoting Proverbs. I love the Proverbs because the Proverbs, most many Christians, I realize they don't recognize the fact the Proverbs are rooted in the law. The Proverbs are like short reflections on how do I live out the principles of God's law in my everyday life. And, and there's an intimate connection between the Proverbs and Exodus and um, Deuteronomy. And so we ought to hear echoes in the Proverbs of, of what we read in God's law. But so many Christians just don't even know hardly what to do with the Old Testament. So they, they ignore it oftentimes. So um, I think that we need to, to, to understand and, and to to understand that this is part of how God wants to shape our soul. These, he has not left us without a record of how to love our neighbor. These are some of the specifics when it comes to obeying uh, the, the commandment of thou shalt not lie. Okay, I think I have one more scripture here. A false witness will not go unpunished and whoever pours out lies will not go free. That's a great reflection from the Proverbs on the previous um, verse about uh, if somebody lies, um, that the punishment that they were trying to bring about for the other person should be visited on them. So this is, this is, God's law is so practical it, you know, and and I don't have every answer for how every law should be interpreted. There's a lot of things that I'm still looking through and thinking through and and studying, but some of them are fairly straightforward. And I'm I'm sharing some of those straightforward ones with you today, because I want you to start to when you when you're like, okay, I'm not going to react. I'm, I see this viral video. I see all my friends freaking out on social media. How? What am I going to do? I, I'm hoping 
to, to get you to think, I'm going to go study the scriptures. I'm going to go see how they have bearing on this. Okay. And so you can't just cloak yourself in a magical social justice warrior robe and think that, you know, that's going to, um, you know, just, you can kind of proceed from there. <laughs> like that's, that's not how this works. Okay. We have to search the scriptures and uh, figure things out. Okay. Now I'm going to move to a different case recently that came out that there was a decision about, and that is the, um, what is this young man's name? Kyle Riddenhouse or something. Now I didn't follow this trial. I only followed it um, a little bit here and there. Now my friend, Melissa Palou, I think she, <laughs> I think she loves to, to follow trials and on her social media feeds, she's always commenting on, on different uh, court cases. Now that there's a woman who maybe should have been an attorney was my friend, Melissa Palou, uh, for those of you who follow her. But um, I, I think that, you know, in the Rittenhouse case, what was interesting was the media narrative, again, that had been built up around this young man was that, um, you know, it was a race case and uh, he's a racist and he just sort of randomly gunned down people. Okay. That was kind of the, the, the media narrative that had been built up going into the trial. And what ended up coming out about it is that the, the two people that were killed um, were uh, two white men. Uh, I believe that they had some affiliation maybe with Antifa, but I could be wrong about that. Um, and it was at a, um, the incident happened at some sort of um, protest at the, in, during the social rest, unrest last summer. So you have a white teenager killing two other white potentially antifa members um and so the question then becomes well now remind me again how this is about race so you know there's that whole part of the narrative that for me feels a little bit removed but um i i think the big the big question going that, that came out of the trial the big issue or revelation that came out of the trial was the 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 way that Rittenhouse's defense team was going to argue with this is that it was self-defense. I don't think many Christians understand what God's law has to say about killing. Um, and so I want to make sure that, that we are clear about this because I, I hear Christians make these mistakes quite frequently. And so I want to just give a quick um, look here as at, um, you know, I'm looking here. Let's see. This is Exodus chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments. That's what we commonly call them. So we just looked at um, verse 16. You should not give false testimony against your neighbor. And now we're going to talk about the commandment in verse 13 of you shall, oh, it wants me to log in. All right, you shall not murder. Okay, so that's important because in older um, translations, it says you shall not kill. And there is a goodly number of Christians who think that the Bible condemns all killing, but that's not actually true. And so we have to, um, understand this 
from a distinctly Christian point of view. And I would commend to you this article by my friend Jim Wallace uh, from his uh, uh, Cold Case Christianity website. It's called The Difference Between Killing and Murdering. It's a very helpful uh, short article. And, and for those of you who don't know, Jim Wallace used to be an LAPD detective. And he talks about these issues of murder, uh, self-defense, and accidental killing, or what we call manslaughter. And he has a lot of scriptures on here. So I would commend to you his article, um, The Difference Between Killing and Murdering, uh, if you want to know more about this. But I think that this is a very helpful distinction that I don't think many Christians have have total awareness about that I think we should have more awareness about. So when we hear these trials, okay, you know, when George Floyd died, the court, what the courts had to determine was what kind of death was this? When Ahmaud Arbery died, the courts had to determine what kind of death was this? And that's why we have in our legal system, first degree murder, second degree murder, third degree murder, manslaughter, you know, all these different distinctions because they're trying to, to determine was this with forethought? Was this with malice? Um, was this an accident? Was this self-defense? And all of those kinds of things. Well, where do they get those ideas? Those are deeply biblical ideas. They get those ideas from the Judeo-Christian worldview. So, for example, when we think about theft, someone breaks into your house at night, okay? If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. In other words, he's not guilty of that person's death. Why is that? Because this is self-defense. In that context, a thief breaks into your house. It's dark. There's no street lamps. Like, I mean, it's like kind of like perpetual sunset here in LA. We have so many street lights. I know it's not like that everywhere because we've been to some parts of Georgia. It gets really dark out there. But in the ancient world, you wouldn't know who's breaking into your house. You wouldn't know what their intent is. You don't know that they're just coming in to steal from you. You might think they're coming in to kill you or kill your wife or kill your children. So in God's law, there's a provision that if, if a thief is found in your house at night, even if they didn't come to kill you, they just came to rob you. You, if you kill them, if you defend yourself and they die, you will not be brought up on charges of that. This is where we get the idea of killing in self-defense. And this, not all killing is the same in God's eyes. Um, so when it says you shall not murder in the Ten Commandments, that is a very particular word. It is a word that is assuming um, some level of malice and intentionality. Now, there's another kind of killing that the Bible talks about. And this is accidental killing. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. 
However, so however, so now it's giving a caveat to that. If he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place that I will designate. And there's a bunch of laws that are uh, for the cities of refuge. So if you accidentally kill somebody, we call this manslaughter often in our legal system. God made a provision so that those people could flee to these safe cities until their case could be heard. Well, why did God have that provision? It's because there was a common cultural practice of family or tribal clan vengeance against a death. And so in God's justice system, he set it up so that, that if there was an accidental killing, that person could run to the city of refuge and get their, their, um, their case heard by a judge or a priest very quickly could establish the facts of the matter through two or three witnesses and find out what happened. And there would be a level of protection for that person so that the family wouldn't come after them. And I think it's interesting that God says that that vengeance is his, that, that he will be the final arbiter of justice. So even when human courts miss it down here, nothing slips by God. He will be the final arbiter of justice. He will make everything right at the last day. So is murder a capital crime for in, in God's justice um, standards? I believe it is. I believe, especially because it is part of the Noahic covenant, I think it's for all humanity. Um, read Genesis 9. You can think about that. Um, I know that not all Christians agree with that. I, I think that sometimes there's a case to be made for wicked governments that put people to death unjustly, and we can have that conversation. But I think as a general principle, uh, capital crimes are a thing in God's justice system. So those are a few thoughts um, related to the Rittenhauer case. So, or Rittenhouse, I think that's his name. But the bottom line of what I want you to understand is that many people thought that, well, if it's just self-defense, it's just some kind of cop-out, like that's not justice. Well, it might be if the facts of the matter can be established that it was self-defense. And in this case, a jury decided that it was in fact self-defense. Many people who saw the video agreed and they felt like that was a just verdict. So when, when we're crying for justice, what we should mean by that is that we want the truth to come out. We want um, a verdict that, and I think this, this is where we're getting into kind of a little bit of my theory of, of humanity, but I think that God has kind of baked it into our, our, what it means to reflect his likeness and be created in his image that, that we kind of know when, when justice has been rendered. And what we mean by that is that there is a just verdict, a verdict that reflects reality, that, that the punishment fits the crime, that the evidence has been established properly. And that, um, you know, that, that that's what we mean by justice. And I think that, that, 
that is a reflection of the fact that God is the ultimate lawgiver, and we are trying to reflect his his likeness through our human court systems. And that's what makes it so gross when we call wicked things justice. And I'm going to give you an example of that right now. Hopefully I'm still streaming. I haven't seen any comments in a while. Otherwise, I'm just talking to myself and having a very good time. Okay. Um, so let's see here. I want to talk in this last part about all of the, I don't know if you, you've heard of, of these happening in California. In California, in the state in which I live, we have a pretty significant problem with theft um, from stores. A, a number of years ago, we passed, I don't know why we did this. I didn't vote for it. <laughs> uh, but we have a law here that, that the voters of California passed that you can steal up to $950 worth of merchandise. And it, if, if you get caught, which the chances of getting caught are low in California, but if you get caught and you, it will only be a misdemeanor. Okay. We also recently passed a law that decriminalizes a lot of things that used to be considered criminal. And so that has created a situation, particularly in San Francisco, but we also see it here. Like people walk into stores and then they leave with bags of stuff and nobody does anything. And, and it's, it's very sad um, that uh, I think that what we see here now is a growing problem, particularly in uh, San Francisco and other places that theft has become normalized. And we even are, has, saw headlines to this effect last summer. I'm going to flash a few of those here. Here's just uh, some screen caps of some headlines uh, from last summer. Black Lives Matter activist says Chicago looting is reparations. This is what they're calling this. Black Lives Matter Chicago organizer defends looting. BLM organizer who called looting reparations doubles down. So this is, you can see uh, the sources for these. And, you know, like Newsweek, that, that's not exactly a conservative, <laughs> conservative paper. Okay. So the idea here is that there is a growing narrative in our culture, in our country, that theft is okay. Like we're okay with that. Like that's how poor people deal with their lives. Uh, that's, that's how poor people get justice. And this is what I mean when we start to call something wicked, good, or justice, hmm, that's, that's, that's a problem. Uh, let's go back to the 10 commandments here for a minute. Uh, there is a very clear commandment of you shall not steal in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. And then we get to the details of that. What, what, how does that work out in everyday life? Well, God has some things to say about that. Um, and stealing implies or assumes private property. That, that God protects 
private property and he has laws in place to allow people to protect their property their property so we want to think about things we don't want our souls and our thought life and our actions to be shaped more by blm and what they're calling justice than it is by scripture and yet i have a lot of calls with pastors behind the scenes and sometimes i bring this up that looting is theft not justice and i've seen some pastors hesitate to agree with me on that point they're hesitant to to say because they're i think to some degree they've allowed their minds to be shaped more by the culture and what the culture is calling justice which i would call wickedness um and sin uh than they have been by scripture terence says blm is unashamedly marxist i agree with you it is and i anarchistic i think you mean they they promote anarchy and ungodly evil is good and good is evil yeah exactly but many christians are hesitant to call that out and and they are hesitant to to take that position wendy says it's disheartening to see how many are outraged over the written house verdict but not upset at the horrific lawlessness that caused all the riots in the first place. Yeah, and I think that that, that ties me back to the theft issue because um, a lot of the, the theft was related to um, the, the looting, which was seen as being necessary, a necessary social corrective, if you will. A really good passage to reflect on related to stealing is Exodus chapter 22. And I want to look at that for just a minute as we wrap up here. I hope you're finding this helpful, practical. Um, so go meditate on Exodus 22 verses 1 to 15. There's a lot of situations related to uh, the, the protection of property, a lot of different commands. But there's a couple I just want to point out to you to you here um whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it so in this scenario you take someone else's property and then you sell it so just an example from everyday life uh you break into a gucci shop you steal some gucci purses and you think i'm gonna steal these gucci purses and then i am going to um I'm going to steal them and then I'm going to resell them. Okay. This is my reparations. Well, according to God's law, if you steal something and then you sell it, you just, in order for there to be justice on that, you must pay back basically a herd of cattle. You must pay back more than you stole. So a herd of five head of cattle, a small herd of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. This is God's standard of justice. So if you if you intentionally go steal from your neighbor and then you resell it, or in this case, you slaughter it, maybe you need food, or maybe you're going to slaughter it and then sell the meat, um, you have to pay back more than you stole. 
Uh, let's see. Anyone who steals must make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for the theft. So sort of an ancient form of debtor's prison. So if you steal something, then you have to pay that back. But if you can't pay back, then you have to work it off. It's like a, a kind of a, a work program to work this off. Now, if you steal an animal and then the, the, the I don't know, the authorities, the police come and they find it in your possession, um, then you have to pay back double. So if you destroy the thing or you, you sell it, you have to pay back times four or five. If you still have the thing that you stole, you must pay back double. Um, but then we have some laws about negligence. If you're grazing your livestock in a field or vineyard and then you let them stray into your neighbor's field, you must also make restitution from the best of your field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into the thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain on the whole field, then the one who started the fire must make restitution. This is, again, another um, scenario of negligence. So what they would do is they would burn off their fields um, in the fall to prepare it for spring planting. And so if you do this and your fire accidentally gets a little out of control and goes into your neighbor's field, you still have to make restitution. So this is not unlike, you know, I got out of my car and I dinged my, my neighbor's door and I dented it. Do I just walk away? No, I have to, I have to leave a note. I have to pay that back. And, and maybe I have to offer to pay for the repair and maybe then some com compensation. Um, I think that um, there's, I just want us to call our attention to the fact that there is a growing swell in our culture to call theft okay, to call theft justice. And from God's point of view, no, that's actually wickedness. Now, here's where something, here's an area where I think our courts could do better or come into deeper biblical alignment is maybe we, we don't need to have um, always like, payment to the state for um, theft, maybe those people need to be paying directly back the people that they've injured so that, that they know um, that those are real people. Those shopkeepers, that's how they provide for their families. That's how they make their living. But this growing narrative, it's okay to rob from shopkeepers. They have insurance. That's what the insurance for, is for. That's wicked. Christians should not be okay with that. Okay. Anyways, hopefully this is helping. Okay. Short answer to this question from Amanda. I'm curious about following Torah or laws, which we follow or why, or why not some, that's a very complicated question. I would uh, commend you um, to maybe studying in uh, like the Westminster catechism kind of addresses that or an Anglican catechism, but basically there's different kinds of laws. Some of the laws related to ceremonial laws and um, ha have been fulfilled in Christ. The priesthood, the temple have all been fulfilled in Christ. So that's why we don't, we don't follow those laws. Food laws were overturned in the book of Acts. 
Um, and what I'm talking about right now are those universal moral laws. It's called the moral, the, the moral part of the law, the eternal part of the law. So that's a short answer to that. Pam asks, what about DAs who don't properly charge these smash and grab looters and just put them back on the streets? Well, in California, they don't have the DAs don't have a lot of choice. Um, I think the, uh, an amount of that wickedness falls on the California voters. We voted these laws in with, through propositions. Um, and so DAs could be seen as part of the problem if there was potential for them to prosecute. But um, under the current, in, at least in California, um, from what I understand, there just aren't a lot of options. Now, are some DAs wicked and complicit in not prosecuting certain um types of theft, uh, not to the fullest extent of the law, definitely. And I think that this goes to, again, the cultural narrative of we don't have equality under the law. We, we are in a position right now, mindset in our country. Well, it's okay to, to punish um, certain people to the fullest extent of the law, but it's a justice issue. We don't really punish the poor. And I think that that's interesting. I should have put this verse in from, I think it's in Proverbs that talks about how, you know, the temptations are different for different people. The wealthy have different temptations than the poor. The poor often have a temptation to engage in theft rather than trusting in God for their provisions and, and work and that sort of thing. Um, but the rich have different temptations. They want to trust in themselves more than trusting in God. So, you know, different temptations for different people, um, because at the end of the day, we're, we're very sinful and uh, we relate to things um, in very different ways. OK, I hope you found this stream helpful and we'll feel more empowered next time when you see crazy things happening <laughs> on social media. Take some breaths, step back and go study your Bible. Start thinking about asking the Lord to show you how does scripture come to bear on this particular situation. And so that you can think more biblically about these things. And I hope that you do have a Merry Christmas, um, that you will have a good time with your family and that you're staying well and healthy. Um, looking forward to the new year. We have a lot of great things planned. So anyways, I look forward to your feedback about the stream. Please share it with a friend uh, that you think might find this content helpful. Good day. God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.